This is Women in STEM Career and Confidence, the podcast for scientific and professional women who want to restore confidence, make meaningful impact, and balance the things and people that mean most to them. I'm Dr. Hannah Roberts, and I'll be sharing with you insights and inspiration into the mindset and skill set to help you navigate your career and lead powerfully. As the Sustainability and Circular Economy Manager at INEOS Styrolution, a leading global styrenic supplier, Cassie Bradley is breaking the mold for women in STEM with her efforts in engineering a 90-year-old plastic into an effectively sustainable material that contributes to a truly circular economy. Cassie holds extensive experience in developing viable solutions in plastics recycling, while often working against many misconceptions and lack of awareness around the emerging technologies of plastic recycling. She continues to aid her team at INEOS in providing innovative solutions for industries that rely on them, like food packaging and medicine. Along with other female leaders transforming the materials industry, Cassie has devoted her work to giving plastics a better role in sustainability, while serving as a prime example of how women can change the field of STEM. In this podcast episode, I asked Cassie about her career pathway so far, the challenges she's faced, and how she makes decisions about her career trajectory. I can't wait for you to meet her, so let's dig in. Welcome, Cassie, to the show today. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Hannah. And Cassie's joining us from Chicago, so we're doing well with the time difference as we're recording this session as well. So thank you for being up early and at it. I would love it if you could start by introducing yourself a little bit about who you are and what you're currently doing. Sure. So as you said, my name is Cassie Bradley. I am currently working as Sustainability Commercial Manager at Ineos Styrolution. So I'm originally from a small rural town in Southern Illinois um, and went to school to get my chemical engineering degree at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. So uh, that was a school that had a great engineering program and it was also in my home state uh, and something that I really aspired to. After that, I ended up moving to Texas for a couple years to work as a production engineer at a chemical facility in Texas. And then uh, after a couple of years, ended up moving back to Illinois, this time to the Chicago area to work for Ineos Styrolution as an engineer at their polystyrene resin production facility, which then uh, led to ultimately me getting tapped on the shoulder for my current role in sustainability, which uh, I've really enjoyed and uh, has opened up a lot of new uh, opportunities and uh, learning opportunities for me. Oh, thank you. It's really interesting to hear your career pathway put out that way. And I, I'm always fascinated by how people get into science, engineering, tech, whatever their particular um, field of expertise is. So was there something as a child that really fascinated you or like sparked your passion for engineering? I wouldn't say there was uh, one specific thing. My parents were very adamant uh, that STEM careers were great opportunities, especially for young women. So I have one sibling who's a younger sister, 
And uh, we were participating in, you know, science camps in the local area and things from when we were very young. Um, my mother was a music teacher uh, when I was a young, uh, young girl. And my dad worked um, in manufacturing uh, in the industry as well. So uh, they really supported me and, and emphasized uh, STEM careers as something that I should consider uh, when I ultimately went to school. So uh, that was what I did. You know, I recognized that um, STEM careers and engineering in particular could open a lot of doors for me throughout my career and really establishing that strong base um, in, in STEM knowledge. So uh, I've really found that to be true. Um, as have I, even though I've now transitioned out of, you know, research and chemistry, I find that the, I guess the, the way in which I think, the scientific way in which I think, the hypothesizing, the seeing and analyzing things, the ability to go, oh, that didn't work, I'll just try something else, because for me, in chemistry, experiments failed all the time, um, <laughs> or set on fire and um, that was the usual thing so being able to have that um stem mentality actually is um invaluable whether or not you continue in that pipeline or not that's what i found for myself yeah absolutely i think uh the that ability to think logically and systematically about any given problem is highly valuable and you know the engineering degree as well gives a certain credibility to you when you walk into a room or when you send your resume to someone you know that shows that you're willing to take on strong challenges and uh work hard to achieve a goal so i think all those things contribute to it being a great opportunity for for young women especially yeah, and you have mentioned, you know, it's an opportunity for women, not just everybody, but women in particular, because I think even more so than chemistry, engineering is lacking in women and really great talent in that area. So how how has your experience been of being a woman in that engineering pipeline? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there's, first of all, a smaller number of women in engineering programs at university, although I think that number is growing. Um, but there's also, you know, as we've talked about, engineering provides a great foundation for many different careers. You know, you can get an engineering undergraduate degree and go to law school or go to medical school, which many people do. Um, but going specifically that step into manufacturing, especially traditional chemical manufacturing, there was a huge drop off in the amount of women that I interacted with day to day um, after moving into that that industry. And so I think especially after that first um, drop off of the number of women going into manufacturing, similarly, manufacturing provides a strong base for a career. You know, you're learning how to work with many different people, how to prioritize problems um, and how to solve problems that have a real bottom line impact for the company. And I think those skills are really valuable as as someone progresses through their career, whether they stay in manufacturing or not. Um, and so I think the fact that some that not as many women end up in manufacturing as men um, is a huge gap in opportunities. Yeah. So there's that niching down into an area that doesn't have as many women, even in the engineering setting, but also the higher up you get in your career often you can get isolated as being the only woman in the room or the only woman who knows this particular area in detail. 
And I wondered how have you found that? I know you've talked about opportunities, but has there been any challenges you've come up against in getting your voice heard or being able to, um, I guess, influence in that kind of environment? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's another really great point that um, a lot of times we as a society or even a company will look at, you know, the number of women to men within their company. And just that overall number says one thing, but when you break it down and segment it into, you know, entry-level positions versus manager positions, senior manager and executives, across that pipeline at each stage, the percentage of women decreases in most cases. Um, and so I think that's something that's really important is to segment and, and look at it that way. And I would say that was a challenge that I've had in my career is to um, demonstrate not only that I'm capable of achieving, you know, the, the goals of those higher level positions, but also so that people know and assume that I'm interested. And I think that's something that's really important is to vocalize from the very beginning what your career intentions are and your career desires are for how far you want to go in the company, what level of responsibility you're willing to take on. Because um, I think sometimes um, in older mentalities, there's you know not that recognition that women even want to pursue that or achieve that. And so Making that very clear early on, I think, is really important that, and was something that was key to me um, establishing myself in my career so far. I think that's so interesting that you describe the, I have, I felt like I had to demonstrate my capability. So there is this really great book called The Authority Gap by Mary Sieghart, I hope I'm saying it correctly. And she talks about ultimately women having to feel like they have to demonstrate their capability, whereas men just have this assumed capability by default. And yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that you also have the experience of having, like, I really have to demonstrate in order for people to believe that I can. Um, there's also this part, which I see a lot, um, and I find it a trap for many people when it comes to their career pathway, is that people often, I call it the leapfrog effect. People will come in uh, like after them and leapfrog ahead of them. And they're like, what just happened there? That can't, that's not fair. I'm working harder. I, you know, um, my work should speak for itself. Whereas you'll often notice that the people that come in after are the people and, and leapfrog are the people who can articulate themselves really clearly. They're very clear about where it is they want to go. Um, and that helps enlist the support of others in their endeavors. Absolutely. So I think that's a great point. And I think, uh, as you've said, that highlights the importance of establishing not only that you're capable, but that you're interested. And, you know, a lot of times I think women um, don't take advantage of the, of the opportunity to have those conversations. So if we do get leapfrogged of going to our leader and saying, why, you know, did this happen? And, and what is the gap that I need to close so that I can be the next one? to you know, achieve that leap. And I think a lot of times we hesitate to have those conversations. We don't wanna seem like we're complaining or, you know, but I think if we have those in a positive way in an optimistic way, um, then we can number one, communicate that we are interested and identify those gaps uh, that we may need to close. Maybe, you know, a skill that we weren't aware that we were lacking or, you know, we can get some helpful feedback. Um, so I think just having those conversations is a huge first step. 
Yes, and I know for many people, even just the thought of having one of those conversations. <laughs> oh, <laughs> absolutely. It's tough. It is tough. It can be tough. I was delivering a, a confident negotiation workshop this morning. We talked about saying no gracefully, setting and maintaining boundaries, asking for what you need, delegation. So really like challenging conversations at times. And I wondered if you could reflect on a conversation maybe that you've had that you may have struggled with in the past, but now you, you've kind of developed that as a skill. Absolutely. So um, I didn't mention in my intro, but I'm also currently um, pursuing my MBA at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And I'm actually almost done with that degree. But one thing I think that is very valuable, aside from all the, uh, you know, core coursework that I completed, was the MBA really taught me how to network and how to network properly. And I think a major thing that I learned is the value of having, uh, you know, a coffee chat or, you know, a 15 to 30 minute conversation with someone where you don't have any end goal in mind, you know, you're just making a connection with that person, meeting them, whether, you know, it's over the phone or, or even over Zoom, um, and just learning and, and inquiring about their career path and uh, tips that they've learned along the way. Um, so for instance, I've been having conversations internally in my company just to learn what types of opportunities are available uh, as I progress throughout my career with the company. So um, I think one saying that they have uh, that I learned in the MBA is if you if you ask for money, you'll get advice. And if you ask for advice, you'll get money. And I think that's just so smart because, yeah, if you go into a conversation with a intention of, you know, getting something from that person, um, you're probably going to get advice. But if you go in and approach the conversation like I'm just really interested in your career and what you've done, would love to learn from you and, and just get to know you. Uh, I think at the end of the day that that conversation can come back um, and help you out in the future. You know, people will know your name, know that you're interested, uh, what your interests are, and they can can help you out when opportunities arise. So that's uh, having those conversations productively uh, is something that I think I've learned that's been really valuable. I 100% agree with you there. And I had one such conversation like that today with a person a full hour, no agenda. We shared each other's like stories. We talked and it was just like, oh, that was a nice hour. There was no agenda. Yeah. Surprised because I usually do this. You can have 15 minutes, get, you know, like tell me what it is that you want from me and I'll see if I can help you kind of thing. It can get a little bit like that. So I was surprised when I looked at my calendar and found, why have I got a full hour with somebody with no agenda? <laughs> and <I> <laughs> It's been a really like special day because of that connection with somebody else. So it doesn't have to be an hour, but that no agenda thing as a regular meeting that you have with people um, really does pay dividends long term. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we, especially as women, we, we have this feeling like we don't want to bug people. We don't want to, you know, take up people's time unnecessarily, but I think that's something we just have to get over, you know, and if you 
realize that if people really don't want to talk to you, they won't accept the meeting request, you know, or they'll, they'll listen to you for 15 minutes, and then they'll move on. And, and you'll know that. But I think, yeah, it is surprising. Once you start doing it, you realize that people do enjoy those conversations. It's a nice break from, you know, the rest of their day where they can just have a fun conversation and get to know someone. So yeah, I, I would encourage people to pursue that. Yeah, and you don't always have to set up your own podcast in order to have the conversation. <laughs> That's my excuse. For Although it is a good, it is a good uh, method. Yeah. <laughs> um, perfect. So I want to bring you to your current position, um, and I'm hoping I'm going to say it correctly, but Styrolution is that how we say the yes. company name? Perfect. Yep. Good. And um. I'd love to hear a little bit more about this because you are in a sustainability role and it's something that's really important to me as a person. Um, And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the circular economy within the role that you're delivering at the moment. Absolutely. So we are in a really unique position and uh, that means we have a lot of opportunity. So Ineos Styrolution is a business unit within the broader company of Ineos, and we focus on styrenic polymers. So that's polymers that are made from a specific type of monomer or a specific chemical called styrene monomer. So we make a wide variety of products, including specialty products, but one of our core products is polystyrene, which is the uh, plastic number six. Uh, when you see it, you know, on the bottom of, of a plastic packaging item that you might uh, encounter. And uh, that's that's a polymer that uh, most folks are familiar with, um, that they interact with day to day. So polystyrene actually is very well suited for recycling. Um, it, it has a very simple molecular structure that can easily be broken down and then repolymerized again. Regardless of this, um, it's often considered a challenging polymer to recycle. Uh, and the reasons for that are, um, are complex, but essentially, at least here in the US, it's typically not accepted in a curbside recycling program. So for instance, at my house, um, I can't throw polystyrene into my blue recycling bin. I have to throw it into uh, the trash bin. Uh, so this is something that we are trying to change, uh, trying to develop this um, economy and value chain for polystyrene. So um, that involves working with a lot of different stakeholders across the value chain, everything from um, you know, the collectors to recyclers to our customers who convert the plastic resin into cups or, or packaging items to the brand owners that use those to house their product. And then ultimately uh, the retailer who who will sell it. So all these stakeholders need to be involved and aligned um, in order to make this successful for any material, um, but also for polystyrene. So we what we are doing is looking at different types of technologies and working to bring those value chain stakeholders together in order to scale those up to commercial scale and establish that circular economy for polystyrene. Perfect. Thank you. That was a super clear explanation for something that is quite complex. I know I worked at Corroded Chemicals for a while and, you know, I, I understand the <laughs> of this. So yes, um, perfect. And 
I just want to throw this out there to you to see if this is the kind of thing that you're talking about. So um, here in the UK, we don't have terracycling waste, you know, specific plastics that you can throw in with your normal plastics. You have to collect them separately and there's only a few key distribution or collection points in the UK. And what we did as a community in our particular village was at the local schools and outside the pet shop, we would set up these um, TerraCycle bins and you could, you know, at home have your own bag of TerraCycle waste, whether that's um, toothpaste uh, tubes or Pringles things or crisps or packets of nuts or whatever it was, uh, you know, baby pouches, food pouches for dogs. I'm just like giving you the whole list here. And <laughs> you could, you know, when I'm dropping the kids off, we can put the things in the box. Um, and then they all get collected and go to the main um, collection site for TerraCycle. So previously we wouldn't have been able to recycle that in our village without a great effort. And now with having those just five wooden bins essentially, um, and a bit of coordination, we've been able to do that for like a local community. When you talk about stakeholders, is that the kind of thing that you're talking about here with the polystyrene? Yeah, so so that definitely is uh, one method that you know we support, and I think that highlights the complexity of this issue. You know, polystyrene gets a lot of negative attention uh, that we believe is unwarranted, but I think that's because it's such a complex topic and folks like to see a specific material or or a specific method for tackling it that they can latch on to and you know try to um, achieve success in in that one area but by doing that um, sometimes it overshadows all the other work that also needs to be done and like you mentioned there's a lot of really complex packaging that's highly engineered over decades to be able to you know, perform as a package and keep that material that it's packaging um, safe and uh, keep it from spoiling. Uh, and so this just highlights all the complexity that we need to address in order to be successful in creating a circular economy, not just for polystyrene, but for all materials. And so bringing those stakeholders together, you know, I think a program like what you just described does a great job of highlighting that fact to the general public, you know, people who may not have realized that these materials can't go in their home bin, or they may not even have realized that they were throwing it in the trash bin, it may not have registered, you know, that, oh, I should be recycling this instead. And so I think that is a major um, action that we are trying to achieve is to also just, you know, educate the layman about how packaging um, affects them and how they can dispose of it properly. And so ideally, um, once a circular economy is established, um, we'll be able to, to process all those materials um, to, to a new material again, which is the circle part of circular economy. Um, but yeah, I think what you just mentioned does a great job of describing the complexity and scale um, of the problem that we're tackling here. Yeah, for sure. And I like the fact that you talked about materials are often um, described as good or bad materials to use, whereas actually looking at, you know, what what it's part of as a whole, you know, is a really important part of the process rather than just labeling, you know, plastics are completely bad and should be banished from the earth. Actually, 
what does the alternative look like and what impact does that have on the environment too so having that circular economy is key for me absolutely and i think you know um that a type of program like you described also helps folks to realize all the ways that they do encounter plastic in their daily life we tend to think of plastic waste as you know just a plastic cup or a plastic fork um, when in reality, there's so much more plastic that we encounter every day um, from our, you know, computers that we're talking on right now to um, the toothpaste tube that you mentioned to our cars. Um, there's plastic everywhere and that's because it's such a valuable material that enables the modern society and, and modern inventions that we utilize today. And so um, we need to think of this issue holistically. Um, and develop a system that solves the entire um, or establishes a, a circular economy for, for all materials. If we just focus on the cups and, and the forks, then we're just solving a small part of the problem. And if we look at that in isolation, we may solve that problem, but we haven't developed a solution that encompasses all the other materials that we encounter. And that's where in my role and at Enios Revolution, we are trying to look at it holistically because as I mentioned, we make a lot of other specialty polymers that go into these specialty solutions aside from just single use polystyrene. So we see the, the size of um, the challenge that's ahead of us and we wanna make sure that we're solving the whole, the whole problem. Yeah, perfect. And you've talked about, um the whole problem but what specifically do you do in your role towards that what what do you actually do day to day yeah so um many different things but i guess one of the the key strategies that i um, am implementing every day or looking at every day is what solutions are out there and available to us so as a resin producer that exists within what's more broadly a chemical company our core competency is chemical processing, uh, you know, and processing of plastic resin material. So we are looking at the different types of recycling technologies that are emerging and, and that are out there. And I will say there is no single bullet solution, uh, no one type of technology or solution that's going to solve this problem on its own. Uh, but instead, there are, you know, first of all, for example, mechanical recycling, which is what we think of as the traditional recycling. You chop up the plastic, wash it, and then remelt it into new plastic products. And then there's the advanced recycling technologies, which is an umbrella term for many different technologies that can accept different types of inputs and um, output different types of products that can be then fed back into the value chain and reused. And so my job is to look at what are the capabilities of these different technologies? Where are they in terms of development? And where can Ineos Revolution get involved to support implementation of those technologies or adopt some of those technologies on our own in order to start um, establishing that circular economy and processing materials for recycling? So specifically, we are looking at both mechanical and advanced recycling technologies. But the advanced recycling particularly, again, are really supportive of our core competency and knowledge as a chemical company. Thank you. That sounds um, pretty cool to be looking at what's out there and deciphering what's important to the company and what you can adopt. Um, so that's cool. 
day to day though I'm thinking more at like the nine to five or 6am till whatever time <laughs> often with um with Europe as well so um like what's the thing that really excites you the most in your just day-to-day activity I know for me like I hate doing the accounts when it comes to my business that's not my favorite but my favorite thing <laughs> to train people to coach people just to talk to people like I am right now so what's like your all-time favorite thing in your role I would say my favorite thing is um, talking with the recycling technology developers. So especially there are some of the technology partners we have who have pilot plants that are operating. So getting to travel to that pilot plant and actually see that technology in action is really cool. Um, Even if it's at a small scale, you know, being able to take something that probably 10 years ago was just an idea and see it established and, and working and see polystyrene being um, you know, recycled back into styrene monomer uh, that we could take is very exciting. And it's exciting to interact with the, oftentimes the founders of those companies or the developers of these technologies because they're so passionate about what they do and uh, they're such smart people and it's just a joy to be around them and to talk about you know not only their technology that they have today but their broader vision for how this technology could help uh, society and help establish a circular economy and solve uh, the waste crisis not only you know just plastic waste but the waste crisis that we have today. So interacting with those uh, technology developers and getting to go and see those pilot plants in operation is uh, one of my favorite things to do. I love that. It sounds like it's really connecting you back in for your, maybe one of your top career values of, you know, seeing and feeling the difference that you're making. It's having a profound impact on your ability to feel fulfilled in the work that you're doing. Absolutely. And it feeds back to my manufacturing roots as well, you know, uh, to be able to go and actually see something operating and, you know, having the knowledge myself of what challenges that entails and to be able to see uh, these young companies overcome those uh, and actually have something that's that's working is really exciting. And that's one of the reasons why I liked manufacturing was that it had an impact on the bottom line of the company. You know, we're making the product that is enabling the company to sell it and, and ultimately make money. So I think similarly, uh, it feeds into that with the mechanical or advanced recycling partners as well, being able to actually see uh, the process being run and see that plastic being recycled um, is very exciting. Excellent. And I also want to ask the flip side of that question. So I talked about, you know, I don't really like doing the accounts or the admin or anything like that. Although sometimes it's, you know, you can't do the the top level stuff all the time because your brain doesn't always have capacity for doing that 100% of the time. So you know, everything in, in balance, but is there anything in particular? Um, so don't tell them at work. <laughs> but is there anything in particular that if you could delegate it and not do it again, wh- what would you get rid of in your role? So I think uh, one of the most challenging parts of my role are some of the conversations that I have to have with the stakeholders. Uh, because everyone wants a solution that they can implement right now that will solve the problem and, you know, uh, then they can move on and, you know, do what they ultimately do, which is to innovate and make new products uh, that they can sell to their customers, whether that's, you know, 
the retailer or the brand owner, um, you know, a food and snack producer or something like that. Um, they just want a, a solution today. And uh, sometimes, you know, that's a tough conversation we need to have around, you know, expectations for uh, what is actually going to be needed to solve the problem? Like I mentioned, there is no silver bullet solution that's just going to work across all industries for all applications for all materials. Uh, so having to lay out, you know, our, our roadmap for how we envision this circular economy being implemented um, and engaging them sometimes can be a, a challenging conversation. But I think once we take the time to walk them through everything that we're doing where they see we are making progress uh, and that we are spending a lot of time and resources on this problem um, helps them to understand where we are and how we can both get to where we both want to be in the future which is a circular economy um, but you know of course i wish i could walk in and uh, just offer everyone exactly uh, the solution that they're looking for but um, that's not always the case Maybe one day, though. <laughs> yes, one, one day, day we will. We will be there. <laughs> Brilliant. So I have a couple more questions before we finish, if that's okay. Yeah, great. Okay. I always like to ask this question. Um, no, I want to ask you another one first. Okay, three questions before we finish. I no really problem. Like to normalize failure because I think it's really important to highlight how we have successes and what we enjoy and all the kind of good stuff, but also to let people know that when people look at LinkedIn and profiles of people and all the kind of showreel of highlights, it's not really the uh, representation of the vast majority of the experience that we always have in life or in the workplace. So I wondered if you could um, give us one example of when you have had something that hasn't worked out for you and what happened instead, like what did you do instead? So um, like sometimes I throw out the, um, the fact that I had to have an experiment put in a, as a PhD student, put in a bomb disposed, like a bomb proof room over the weekend because it all went a little bit wrong and it had to be video monitored for 48 hours and I was not even in my own university I'd gone as a visiting PhD student for a week to learn a technique all kind of unraveled um and I just had to do the walk of shame behind this experiment with a um a fire extinguisher in case it's set on fire it's just awful oh no um and I learned quite a lot from that experience but um, well, the morning before that experience, um, I'd had a phone call with my mom and my dad had been taken to hospital. And I learned that actually you can't show up for work if your mind is elsewhere, because you're going to make mistakes, sometimes very big mistakes like I did. So I wonder if you'd, I mean, that's quite an extreme example, but I wondered if you'd had a failure, big or small, and what you learned from that. Sure. So, of course, absolutely. I've had many failures, unfortunately. Um, but oftentimes, um, I think those were due to a pursuit of perfection and having that get in the way of success. So particularly working in manufacturing, you know, um, one of my main responsibilities was to ensure the plant was operating optimally day to day. But the other part of my responsibilities were to implement improvement projects and optimization projects. And there were several times that um, I didn't, 
you know, end up completing some of those optimization projects or improvement projects just because um, priorities got shifted elsewhere or, you know, for, for a plethora of other reasons. Um, but I think one of the things that I learned from that was not to let perfection get in the way of progress and to take maybe some of the small successes that I had along the way where I did make, you know, incremental improvements and focus on those as successes. And uh, maybe the next time, you know, that I um, encountered an improvement project, I didn't try to solve the whole problem on, you know, on the first try, but instead to say, how can we segment this out and break this up incrementally so that we can make small improvements that ultimately will add up to where we want to go. And I think that's something that I've had to take and apply in the circular economy uh, area as well is again, you know, we're trying to tackle a huge problem here and we're not going to solve it overnight, but we need to solve it the right way. Um, and if we're always trying to, to strive to solve the entire problem right away, we may overlook some incremental improvements that we can make along the way. And so um, while there have been, you know, maybe partnerships with technologies that didn't work out that, you know, we were really excited about and, you know, maybe we find out that the, the technology um, doesn't perform as we would have liked or, um, you know, other different reasons, maybe they move on with a different partner or something like that. Um, but we don't align ourselves to just one technology because we know there's not a silver bullet solution. So kind of diversifying, you know, who you're working with and, and the number of projects you have in the pipeline will allow you to make those incremental improvements and ultimately get where you want to go. Thank you for sharing that. And I know that the perfectionism part will resonate with a huge number of people as, you know, a really pervasive issue that can come into people's lives if it's left unchecked. Um, I like to think of like the perfectionist or the pleaser or the pusher parts of us as discrete voices in our heads that have a set agenda and way of doing things and learning how to understand what the agenda is, what the vulnerability is underneath and sort of really separating that agenda to regain choice in what you're doing. So the perfectionist will often um, have the vulnerability of like feeling, I don't know, different, shamed, that kind of thing, substandard in some way um, if they don't achieve that perfection. So being able to tolerate just a tiny little bit of that shameful feeling of, I'm not gonna give them the full solution here. I'm just gonna do this incremental increase and that's got to be enough for now. And um, being able to tolerate that really helps us overcome that um, voice that is driving the need to perform at that level. Absolutely. And I think, you know, so many times we focus on what we didn't achieve instead of focusing on what we did achieve. You know, those incremental improvements are really important and they're building a really solid foundation that's going to allow, you know, not only yourself, but possibly your team to move forward and, you know, achieve those ultimate end goals. So we need to give ourselves credit for that. And how do you do that? What's your favorite way of celebrating incremental wins? So uh, every week, every Friday, I actually send my boss uh, what I call a weekly report. And uh, it's just a summary of, you know, everything that's going on in the sustainability world that week, you know, key highlights and actions that uh, we took 
over the course of the week and, and what to expect in the week going forward. And I think that's, uh, of course, a helpful exercise for my boss to understand what's going on. But it's also useful for me to, you know, kind of center myself at the end of the week. Where are we? What did we achieve? And what do we need to do going forward? And helps me to, you know, write down all those uh, small things even that I did over the course of the week that were um, productive. And also that allows me to have a document for the end of the year when I go into my performance review. You know, I can review those weekly reports that I sent throughout the year and pull out those uh, achievements so that I don't forget about them and can take credit for them at the end of the year. I love it. I do something really similar on a weekly basis as well as quarterly and yearly in a bigger kind of way, but it does help just go, oh, I do have traction here. I have moved forwards even slightly in a week is always a good thing. And I, I often look for the 1% improvement uh, week on week. What's my 1% improvement for next week. Sometimes it's like, go to bed on time. <laughs> That's going to help the whole situation. And sometimes it it's something more, uh, I'm not going to say fundamental, because I think the sleep's probably more fundamental, but sometimes it's That's very important, practical than that. So it's like the 1% gains. So my last question for you then is, if you could reflect back on the timeline of your whole life, and go back to a specific moment in your life and whisper a piece of advice in your ear, which moment would you go back to and what would you say to yourself? Yeah, I think uh, I would go back to maybe when I graduated from undergrad, you know, with my chemical engineering degree, was going into manufacturing. Um, you know, I think as women, um, one thing we're told is, you know, not to try to do everything at once to try to, you know, spread things out and over the course of our, our lives and um, only, you know, tackle one thing at a time because we try to do everything. And um, I think, you know, I maybe took that a little too much to heart at some points, you know, and um, there were some points at which my career didn't accelerate as quickly as I would have liked, or I didn't take as proactive steps early, as early as I should have. And that's what I would, you know, go back and tell myself is don't wait, you know, get started early advocating for yourself and always be thinking about that next step, you know, even that next small short term step. Um, and, you know, don't try don't worry about do, trying to do too much at one time, you know, you'll prioritize the things that are important uh, to you in life and in your career. And yeah, I would, I would push myself to move faster um, and take action and be proactive to make those things happen a little bit sooner. Yeah, it's going from that, allowing your career to unconsciously unfold in front of you, that passive kind of um, way of being to a completely proactive and advocacy role for yourself. And that for me is the difference between having an unconscious, then conscious career, and then an intentional career. Like being really intentional about your strategy and your actions and what you're up to in the world. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here on the podcast and spending some time with me today. I've really enjoyed hearing more about your life and what you're up to in the world. If people have enjoyed listening to this and they want to find out a little bit more, where should they go to, Cassie? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Uh, if folks want to find out more about polystyrene recycling and particularly what Revolution is doing, uh, I would recommend they visit our website, um, specifically 
uh, www.styrevolution-eco.com. Perfect. Thank you. And I know that you'll be out there on LinkedIn if people want to connect with you personally as well. Thank Absolutely. you. And have a great rest of your day. You too, Hannah. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Women in STEM Career and Confidence. To get further support in your journey, join me in Breakthrough Unleashed on Facebook.